Well, hi, how are you? It's good to say a word of welcome. Uh, those of you joining us over at Mission and at Central Abbey, hello to you as well. I uh, hope you're having a good weekend. Uh, we are in John chapter 7, so you'll need your Bibles. Uh, you should know that by now. We've been uh, about six months in this series in the Gospel of John, working our way through it slowly, so we're in John chapter 7. Uh, the topic that we're in this weekend is an incredibly relevant topic. I mean, I say that every weekend because I think every weekend's relevant. Uh, but I think particularly in the day and age that we live in, where, where we go to the main point in this first half of John chapter 7, is an incredibly relevant issue for the day and age that we live in, and it's the question of can we know truth? Is there a objective standard of moral and ethical truth for all times, all places, all peoples around the world? Can we know truth? Can we understand it? Can we discern it? And how might we know it? And then how might we live our lives in response to it? So I don't know if you happen to pick up the story uh, this week. It was not broadcast broadly, but the National Post covered it. Uh, the story of a 16-year-old kid who was arrested outside his Catholic school in Renfrew, Ontario. Did you, any of you see that story? It's an interesting story, and you might wonder, so why was he arrested? He was trying to return to school after a suspension that happened back in the fall. And you're like, well, what would happen in a, in a Christian school for a, a kid to do something so serious? What was his crime that he would be suspended? And as now he's trying to work his way back into the school, that he's arrested when he comes back to school. So he tells his story in the National Post, and he says this, I got suspended for comments made during a class discussion. It was about male students using female washrooms, gender dysphoria, and male breastfeeding. Everyone was sharing their opinions on it, and any student who wanted to was participating, including the teacher. I said that there were only two genders, and you were born either a male or a female, and that got me into trouble. Now, I don't know what you think of that story, and I'm sure that there's lots of layers to it, and we don't know the whole story behind what goes on in this kid's mind and necessarily how he made these statements. But the issue itself raises a lot of questions. Uh, first and foremost, the question of why would a Christian school student be labeled as dangerous for expressing the very biblical outview, worldview, that they purport to teach in the book of Genesis that God created us as male and female. And asking the question, what standard of truth was used to pass judgment on this young man's comments? And whose worldview did this student crash up against that caused such great angst that he had to be suspended and blocked from coming to school? Now, some of you are wondering, and what could that possibly have to do with the Gospel of John? Well, we're starting into a new chunk of John's Gospel. We've been midway through. We're now coming up to the last six months of Jesus' life, and John really slows down the pace. The first five, six chapters cover two and a half to maybe three years. We're now up to the last six months of Jesus' life. And we're seeing in our text today, John chapter 7, a clash of worldviews where Jesus is misjudged, and he comes up against the prevailing worldview of his brothers, his own flesh and blood brothers, and also a clash with religious leaders. And the text ends with this final clarion call from Jesus that you're making a judgment about life, and so make sure that you are judging rightly. And, and I, I could probably word it this way. If you want his big idea in one statement, it would be Jesus saying this, that there is only one standard of truth for us to live by. Now, that's not precisely how it's worded in verse 24, but that is basically what Jesus is getting to in this argument, that there is just one standard of truth for us to live our lives by. 
And that might sound like a simplistic, uh, tell me something I don't know type of a statement, particularly for uh, inside the walls of the church. But that statement, if you don't know it, you should know, is becoming increasingly politically incorrect in the world that we live in today. And so in this text, we're going to see the collision of these two worldviews. So let's just set the context, remind us of where we've been. So John, more than any of the other Gospels, timestamps his book. So six times through the book, he tells us what was happening in the various cycles of the Jewish festival years, and it helps us date what's going on. So back in John chapter 2, he told us there was a Passover in Jerusalem. In John 5, he told us there was another feast in Jerusalem. He doesn't name it, but there's another feast. And then in John 6, last chapter that we were in, another Passover in Jerusalem. Now in John chapter 7, which we're going to read today, he says, and the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles is at hand. A a little later in John 10, he tells us the feast of dedication, which is Hanukkah, uh, the celebration of the rebuilding of the second temple. And then in John 11, another Passover is at hand. And you're like, okay, why does it matter? So what? Who cares? But those timestamps help us because they give us the context for the times and places and the seasons where Jesus was ministering. So the first couple verses of John chapter 7 says this, after this, well, of course, after what? John chapter 6, the events that we've been studying the last three weeks. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So what we just take note of there is that between chapter 6 verse 71, the end of the last chapter, and chapter 7 verse 2, that just that first little verse covers 6 months. 6 months have come and gone. Now you can read in the other gospels put together a harmony of the gospels and we're told that there are at least 14 distinct events that the other gospels include of what happened in that in-between period, but John just just fast forwards. We've been at the Feast of Passover time in John chapter 6. Now we're up to the Feast of Booths. And does it matter? Well, yes and no. No in the sense that it doesn't change the content of Jesus' teaching. But yes in the sense that as students of Scripture trying to piece together the thread of Jesus' ministry, you get this in your life. There are certain dates and times and places and seasons that you mark in your memory, and they mark significant events, right? So for me, there's a number of them in my mind. March 3rd, 1980 will always be remembered in my mind because it was the day my dad died. And it's just embedded in my mind. I was a 15-year-old kid and dad drops dead and it's embedded in your mind. March 21st, 1987. It's the first day of spring. Yeah, that's great. It also happened to be our wedding day. So that date is important, right? (laughs) April 8th, April 5th, November 23rd the dates of our children's birth. Very important events. And you're like, what does it matter? Well, if you were to say to somebody, well, we were in New Orleans during Mardi Gras, or we were in Washington, D.C. on July 4th, or we were in Mexico City on Cinco de Mayo, uh, the time and the place and the dates matter because they give you a context for what's going on. And so we talked about this back in chapter two, that the Jewish festival cycle over the course of the year, there were seven feasts, There are many other holy days and celebrations, but seven feasts in particular that the Jews acknowledged. There were three of them in the spring, back on top of one another, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits. Fifty days later, you have one in late spring, early summer, the Feast of Pentecost, and then in the fall, you have three more feasts. You have the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. And so that's the timestamp that we're in right now. And why it matters is that it anchors the story to real life events that were taking place. 
And so the next few chapters, actually uh, we could debate right up to chapter 10 because it's not really clear. You get into chapters 8 and 9. Eight for sure I think is happening here. Chapter 9 maybe, chapter 10, the first half maybe. But we know by 10.22 it's now up to Hanukkah time. So this next two chapters may have all taken place in one week. And the symbols that we're going to look at in the next few weeks, the symbols of water and light are critically important as part of the festival of booths, the festival of, uh, <laughs> I've lost my thought, the festival of tabernacles, there you go, boom, it's late, I need some coffee, wow. <laughs> so Josephus, Roman historian, first century, Jewish rites, Jewish rituals, wrote a lot about the Jewish nation. He said that the Feast of Booths was the most popular of the seven, and likely because it was the most celebratory. It was the most happy of all the feasts. And so basically what it was, was an eight-day camping trip. Because they built booths outside. So we'll throw a couple pictures up that would give you an illustration. One's modern day. You can literally see the modern buildings behind. So even today, Orthodox Jews will celebrate the Feast of Booths by building a little outside a booth or a tent. The Festival of Tabernacles, the Festival of Booths. And then one is taken from the movie The Chosen. So if you've not seen that movie The Chosen, highly recommended. It. It's great, but it gives you more of a first century look. And the idea was that they were commemorating their 40 years wandering in the wilderness. When they lived in tents or when they lived in booths, when they put these temporary structures together and they're looking back on how God cared for them, how he fed them, how he gave them water in the desert, and they're simply celebrating the provision of God. And so it was a very happy festival and the kids loved it because for eight days we got to sleep outside. Either going to Jerusalem or just putting a tent up on the roof of the house or out in the yard building a booth like this. And so it was a very popular festival. That's the context for the next several weeks. And today we are going to see the clash of Jesus with these worldviews. First, the unbelief of the world that we see in his brothers. And then the unbelief of religion that we see in religious leaders. So we're going to read the first half of it, the first chunk of our text today, beginning at verse 3. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Okay, interesting text. What we're seeing is this clash of the worldviews, and we're seeing the unbelief even in Jesus' brothers, which represent the unbelief of the world system. Now, just interesting comment as we just scan through it. His brothers, who were they? Well, Matthew gives us the names of at least four brothers. So we know Jesus had at least four because they're named in the New Testament. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, who was sometimes also called Jude. And at this point in time, they didn't believe in their brother. Can you imagine growing up with a Messiah? Growing up with a perfect brother? 
they didn't like him, they didn't believe in him, and you can see the, uh, the mockery in their tone here. And yet we know that they would come to believe. We know that by Acts chapter 1, in the upper room, the 120 who are waiting for the Holy Spirit to, to fall, we're told there in Acts chapter 1 that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the brothers of Jesus are there in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall. So they come to believe. We know that his brother James become a leading elder in the church in Jerusalem, and he went on to write the book called James at the end of the New Testament. And his other brother Jude wrote a letter at the end of the New Testament, the letter of Jude. So two of them, for sure, have written down scriptures. But they wouldn't come to believe. They would come to believe, but they have not yet believed him. And basically, the conversation goes like, you know, brothers joshing with one another. Hey, Jesus, really too bad about all those people that left you. Chapter 6. We heard about the crowds. You had great crowds of eating at the 5,000, and then they all walked away. That's really too bad, Jesus. But hey, you know what? There's a big festival happening down in Jerusalem. You can get all those followers back, just a little signs and wonders. Anyone who wants to be known doesn't hide themselves, verse 4. If you want to be known, you don't hide away secretly. You show yourself publicly, so show yourself, Jesus. And the text tells us really clearly, we read it there in verse 5, that they did not believe. That they carried, like the same crowds, this same curiosity about Jesus and his signs and his wonders and his miracles. From a worldly point of view, it made great sense. You want to get a name for yourself, then go where the crowds are. Promote yourself. But his brothers didn't understand the cost to Jesus and why he could not yet go with them. They misunderstood his methods and his timing and really what was at stake. So in verse 6, he says, my time has not yet come. Uh, an echo, you probably hear it already, back to chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. And his mother comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. And Jesus' response is, what does that have to do with me, woman? My time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. The hour of my glorification isn't here. And yet Jesus, in that instance, steps to the side and turns water into wine. Same thing's happening here. He says to his brothers, my time has yet not come. Uh, I, he had been staying for over a year in Galilee to avoid the Jews because he knew that they were going to kill him. And so he does not want to intentionally go into Jerusalem and stir up a hornet's nest. And so he waits till they're gone and then he follows quietly. He follows privately. Now is not the time for me to make a huge public display. The second thing that we see here is very significant in verse 7 is that he says, and my message is not welcome. My hour's not come, and my message isn't welcome. And you see the clash of the worldviews happening, the clash of truth and evil. You, my brothers, have nothing to lose because the world doesn't hate you. You're just sailing on in sync with the culture, but the world hates me. And he says specifically why in verse 7, because I call out the evil that is in the world. Now, that's a pretty pointed statement. And you will understand this, that truth attracts opposition if it is not wanted. Human nature doesn't want the lights turned on. So think back to John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Religious leader comes to him. And he's, Nick, you know what? This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And doesn't come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. We know this inherently. We see it in the world all around it. We see it in our kids. We see it in our own lives. That we tend to hide. 
that shame keeps things hidden. Shame keeps us in the darkness, quote unquote. Shame keeps us trapped. There's a fear of being known. And I'm sure if we were honest around this room, all of us could say there's been times and places in our lives where you're thinking in your mind, if these people only knew who I was. If these people knew where I have been and what I've done and the thoughts I've had in my mind, if people knew who I was. And so shame causes us to hide, to want to stay in the darkness. And what Jesus is saying is here, his very presence is like a spotlight on our lives. And if we're not yet ready to come out of the darkness and walk into the light and the freedom of the light, we will end up hating the light. Shut that light off. Stay out of my business. Who are you, even Jesus, to tell me how to live my life? Old, old story, but R.C. Sproul, who's dead a couple years ago, but he told this story of a well-known professional golfer who he had the opportunity years back to golf with President Gerald Ford, Billy Graham, and Jack Nicklaus. After they came off the greens, his buddy says to him, what was it like to golf with the president and Billy Graham. And the guy got red in the face and with disgust, he's like, I don't need anybody, including Billy Graham, shoving religion down my throat. He grabbed his clubs and he went out with a bucket of balls to the driving range and he's just pounding out in fury, getting his steam out. And finally, when he'd cooled down a bit, his buddy's like, man, Billy Graham must have been really hard on you out there. And then his buddy's like, actually, he didn't say anything about religion at all. So what was it? And Sproul goes on to say this in his book. He said, astonishingly, Billy Graham had said nothing about God, Jesus, or religion, and yet the pro stomped away after that game, accusing Billy of trying to ram religion down his throat. What had happened? Simply this. In the life of Billy Graham, the lost pro had sensed the presence of our holy God. Interesting. See, we've got to prepare ourselves that living in this world, but not being of the world, that the message of Jesus is not going to be welcomed by many around us precisely because of this reason, the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the conscience within the human creature. Now, obviously, we need to take a sidebar here because some of you, I know how you think you're already thinking this way. Yeah, but what if you're an idiot? Okay, let's talk about that. Do you remember the study that we had last summer, uh, 1 Peter 3? Peter gave this challenge, a very pointed challenge, when he said, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is within you. And you can just puff up good and loud there and go, always be prepared to give a defense. But then he goes on to say, how? But do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, when they slander you for your beliefs, for what you're up against, that those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. That others will go, you know, why are you giving them such a hassle? Yes, they've got an opinion. Yes, they have their, tr- their truth that they want to tell you about. But they've done it with gentleness and with respect. And so if you're going to stand for Jesus and stand for truth, we understand that some people will reject that message. But make sure it's the message that they're rejecting and not our own offensive behavior. Amen? Amen. Amen. So verse 8 to 9, I'm not going to go up. Uh, In the original language, it's like, I'm not going to go up yet. Some people look at this and go, did Jesus just lie? 
I'm not going to Jerusalem, and a few verses later, I'm going to Jerusalem. Well, you'll see the word yet twice in your text, and in the original structure, they're going, he pulls from that thought, I'm not going up yet. I'm not going with you. I'm not going the way you want me to publicly. He stays behind. He tarries a few hours or maybe even a couple days because the next time we see him, it's midway through the week. The people are looking for him, and in verse 14, he starts to teach. So about middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. So the fourth day of an eighth-day feast. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it this, this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there's no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? And yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus' worldview collides with this religious worldview. And the unbelief of religion, which almost sounds like an oxymoron. But you can be very religious and yet not have embraced true belief. First and foremost, we see it as a clash of authority because the first question they, they ask is, where did this guy get his authority? Where did he get this amazing teaching? Where did he get this understanding when he has no degree? Literally, the language is like he has no letters behind his name. He didn't attend one of our schools, uh, the, the yeshivas, they were called. And there were at least 30 individual yeshivas, rabbinical schools in Jerusalem. And so many of these leaders were likely rabbis who had taught young students, and they knew that Jesus had not come through their schooling system. So where did he get his authority? Where did he get his teaching? And Jesus says there in verse 16, it's not my teaching, it's the one who sent me. I got my teaching from him. And it raises a really interesting age-old debate. How much formal education does a person need in order to testify to the truth of God's word? Some of you in this room might be thinking that. Do I need a Bible school degree? Do I need to go to seminary? Do I have any right to speak for the Lord if I have no formal education? Can God use a person who has no formal degree? Because that's what they're saying of Jesus here. He has no formal degree. Who got him this authority? Acts 4.13, one of my favorite texts in the, in the book of Acts. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. In our language, they were blue-collar workers. They were fishermen. They were just from the ordinary working class. When they saw them, uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And why were they astonished? Because they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's the key phrase, they'd been with Jesus. No formal education, but they had spent time with the Lord. There are a ton of uneducated spiritual leaders in the history of the church. Uh, there's some very famous ones. 
Uh, the best-selling Christian book of all times, other than the Bible itself, is Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. And he had no formal education, no formal training. Uh, you've heard the name Charles Spurgeon. No formal Bible school education when he began to preach. You've heard of Dwight L. Moody, D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, the founder of Moody Church, Chicago, the founder of Moody College, Chicago. No formal education when he began. One of my favorites, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think one of the greatest preachers of a generation ago, started into ministry. He was a medical doctor. He had medical training, but he had no theological training other than the fact that he was a student of God's word. Now, all of these guys, don't get the story wrong, all of these guys encouraged studies. In fact, Spurgeon founded a college, Moody founded a college, and Martin Lloyd-Jones served on the board of many seminaries and encouraged young leaders to get education. So Jason Allen is the current president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's written a little book called Discerning Your Call to Ministry. And he says, when you're thinking about doing ministry and the study of the word, there's an important reason why we should study and why seminary can be important for some people. It's not needed, but it is important. And he gives us four pointers. Number one, the complexity of the times that we live in. That the issues that we are dealing with in modern culture in the Western world require a thoroughly grounded biblical knowledge and worldview. And if they don't, you get beat up. So we see this story all the times of Christian kids who grow up in Christian homes, come through Christian training, and then they head off to a secular university and their faith gets knocked the snot out of them because they don't have their roots down deep in a biblical worldview. Uh, the centrality of the teaching of scriptures, that the greatest responsibility that we have as Christian believers, as brothers and sisters, is that we know the word of God and we know how to apply it in life situation with our friends and family. The consequences of ministry, that's critical. So you know what, if you get your engineering wrong, like tragedies happen, you get other issues wrong, but you get your theology, you get your Christology, you get your things with Christ wrong, what's at stake? It's the eternal destiny of men and women that are at stake. And so the consequences of knowing our Bibles. And then the priority of Great Commission, that it's not just a burden for lost people, but it's also an equipped mind to be able to reason and to teach and to, to walk with people with their questions. And so Alan says, you know what? Formal training is not required, but it would be greatly encouraged. And so people will ask, well, do I need formal training? No. And yet, Yes. No, in the sense of, do you need to sit through four years of Bible school? Do you need to go to a seminary? I don't think so. But I think that every single believer needs to be a student of God's word. Amen. So Paul said to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God. A worker not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that passage, rightly dividing, is literally a medical term, dosing out, giving the right prescription, the right amount and the right point of time, that you're so deep in the word, you've studied it so well, that you know in the moment the Holy Spirit leads you how to dose out the word. Now, that being said, so all of that stuff about formal education, because some of you are like, well, dang, I didn't have any formal education. Please hear me. The Holy Spirit is your teacher, right? And the most important thing in all of this is the heart and soul behind the studies. Because simply filling your head with more theological knowledge without wisdom and without the Holy Spirit's teaching and without love and without winsomeness is actually good for nothing. I think in North America, we have a lot of potato head Christians. 
And you're like, what do you mean by that? Christians who have this massive theological brain, they have, we are so well resourced in North America, are we not? Like literally seven days a week, you get on your television, you get on the internet, you can be filled with great resources, not just poor resources, but great resources, literally seven days a week. We can so cram our head full of theological knowledge, and then we have these tiny little hands and a tiny little heart, you know, potato head. And I think we need to grow our heart and our hands as equally large as our theological brains that we have the warmth of the Holy Spirit and the, the warmth of Christian community and love and, and service of one another. And then our hands, the outworking of our faith. You fill your head full of knowledge, but you don't actually live it out. The saddest part is this, that there are some very arrogant theological minds. You may have bumped into some of these teachers. And there are students of religion, actually students of world religions, who don't actually know the Lord. It's an amazing thing. Uh, one of my favorite books on comparative religions, uh, it's called God is Not One. It's written by a professor from Boston University. Uh, he compares the eight major world religions and philosophies that rule the world is what he calls it. And his chapter on Christianity is bang on. You read his chapter on Christianity and you're like, this guy's obviously an evangelical believer. He just nails what we would say is gospel truth. And yet you read his other chapters and he nails the truth on all the other religions as well. And then at the end of the book, he self-identifies and said, I'm not a follower of any of these religions. I'm just a study of all of them, a student of all of them. So you can study religion and not really know the Lord. And the men that Jesus were confronting had heads that were full of theological knowledge, but their hearts were cold to the things of God. And in fact, they were trysting the law for their benefit. And Jesus nails them down, verse 18, you're seeking your own glory. And I'm seeking the glory of my Father. So the mark of truth, he says, the mark of true teaching is who gets the glory. Is God exalted or is self exalted? Uh, just think this through in your mind. When you come away from a Bible study or a teaching, you're watching something online or in television or in a weekend service or at a Bible study, a care group, whatever, do you walk away from the teaching going, oh my goodness, our God is so great? Or do you have a tendency to say, wow, was that teacher great? Man, they really nailed it. They were entertaining. They were great. Like, is it the teacher was great or is it that our God is great? Is he exalted? So in pursuit of religious leadership, we know this, that power can be an addictive elixir, particularly in the West these days. We have watched way too many leaders fall. A challenging book, Chuck DeGroat. He's a psychologist, denominational leader, a church planner, assessor, and he wrote this book called When Narcissism Comes to Church. It's a challenging read, and he says this, that we swim in the cultural waters of narcissism, and churches are not immune We've got a problem, all of us, and it's an us problem, not a them problem. And then he goes on to talk about some of his experience, and he says, I learned that it wasn't easy to confront systemic narcissism in churches that are seen as successful, special, blessed, spirit-led, and anointed. Whole church systems and programs can evolve within the waters of narcissism. And when it's the water that you swim in, it's hard to see and even harder to confront. And he finally says this, and this is actually quite a damning statement. When he says, ministry leaders and churches today are obsessively preoccupied with their reputation, influence, success, 
rightness, progressiveness, relevance, platform, affirmation, and power. It's hard to read that. And you say, oh God, protect us. Oh God, keep us from ourselves. God, keep us from this tendency within to seek our own glory, which is what Jesus was pointing here. You are seeking your glory, not the Father's glory. Then in verse 19, you're not even abiding by your own religious standards. And he just pokes at them because you're not following the law of Moses. You're trying to kill me. And then he refers back to another confrontation that they had back in chapter five, the healing at the pool of Bethesda. And then he uses this little illustration that you will cleanse a little boy in the ceremonial act of circumcision on the eighth day as the law requires. And if the eighth day happens to fall on a Sabbath, you will break the Sabbath in order that that little boy can go through circumcision. And yet I healed the man's entire body on the Sabbath and you're freaking out about it. You're not thinking clearly. Your judgment is clouded. You're protecting your own agenda, your traditions, your teaching, but you don't have in mind the things of God. And then verse 24, he gets to the main point of his argument, and it's a very interesting phrase. You're using the wrong measurement. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That's an interesting phrase because a lot of people today are saying Christians aren't supposed to judge at all, right? No, we judge every day. We make decisions all the time. We make dozens of decisions. We make choices. We make judgment calls. We try to figure out how we're going to live our life. And what Jesus is saying to his brothers is you're judging based on the popularity of the crowds. To the religious leaders, you're judging based on man-made traditions. And yet Jesus says the key to unlocking truth, the key to judging correctly is you've got to have the right standard. And if you go back to verse 17, maybe you notice we skipped that. But back in verse 17, he says this, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. How do you know God's will? Well, how do you know you know the truth? Well, you've got to be willing to obey the truth. And if you're willing to do God's will, God will tell you his will. Interesting little twist on those words. And it refers to the posture of the human heart that is so critical as we approach God. And it's the question that we have to ask ourselves daily is, am I prepared to respond to the Holy Spirit with absolute surrender and obedience? Literally before I open my Bible in the morning for devotions, before I head off to a Bible study or a community group, before I gather in a weekend service to so-called sit under the word of God, have I made up my mind in advance that I'm going to obey and apply what the word of God says to me and by the Holy Spirit's grace, I will live it out. Have I made my decision in advance? Lord, whatever you tell me, thy will be done. Uh, Jeff Christofferson, he's a Canadian author and a pastor. He wrote this little novel. I read it over the Christmas season called Once You See. And he talks about seven temptations of the Western church. So it's a novel, it's a story, and then some principles. And it's the story of this Muslim kid who comes to faith in Christ in an Islamic nation. Miraculous story of his conversion. So many of them we're hearing these days. And he gets into an underground church. And eventually that church begins to be persecuted. They kill some of his family. He escapes to North America and he joins the North American megachurch. Quite interesting book. But as he comes to faith back in his Islamic nation, 
The first service in the underground church that he's welcomed into, he comes into this small group, just 12 or 15 people. They share a meal together, and then the leader opens a Bible and says this, today we will obey St. Paul, the apostle's message, to Isa, Jesus' community in Ephesus, the sixth chapter. So I was reading that at Christmas, and I'll tell you, that line jumped off at me. Because I thought, you know what, when we read the scriptures, we don't typically read it like that. We say today's scripture reading is, or let's listen to, or let's hear, how might it change our scripture if every time we open this book, we would say, today we're going to obey John chapter 7. Just a quite little shift, is it not? Uh, The philosophicalism he talks about, the first temptation of the church is this. So at the end of the book, he summarizes. The first temptation is what he calls philosophicalism, and it's that we are a Bible-believing people. Have you ever heard us say that? All the time. People of the book. This is who we want to be, and it's a great philosophical statement. We are a Bible-believing people. But he said, you know what? A kingdom corrective to that statement might be something like this. That biblical belief demonstrated through practical obedience is how we characterize genuine orthodoxy. So instead of saying we're a Bible-believing people, maybe we should start saying we're a Bible-obeying people. You want to know the truth, Jesus says, verse 17, are you willing to do my will? So you know this. Jesus used an illustration at one time, the difference between the wise builder and the foolish builder the one who built on the rock, the one who built on the sand. They both had the same information. They both heard his word, but only one took his word and did it, the one who built his life on the rock. And Jesus is gonna go on as we dig into this text over the next couple weeks to make some audacious claims. There's these beautiful pictures of water and light that has so much to do with the, the festival of booths. But before we close off this week's text, we need to camp out for just a few minutes In verse 24, because in that verse, Jesus is making a very clear declaration that truth can be known, that right judgment can be known, and that in every judgment we make in our everyday lives, that we need a standard by which we are judging and to make sure that it is the right standard. And these are important questions in the day that we're living in. Because every single one of us are making multiple, multiple, multiple decisions every day of our lives. And the question that we've got to ask ourselves is, how will you make decisions about how you are going to live your life? Upon what philosophical worldview are you going to base your life's choices? Because there is no such thing as a neutral worldview. It does not exist. There is some philosophical thought, some theological thought in your mind based upon which you make your decisions. And the world is telling us today that only you can determine what is true and right for you. But I think we need to question that. I think we need to ask that question, is it really true that I have enough wisdom in me that I don't need an outside source of wisdom? Like, is that really true? I mean, I don't know what you think of yourself, but I look at myself and I'm like, oh my goodness. Do I really need no reference? I need no reference to history, to biology, to sociology, to theology, to psychology, to all the other ologies. I need no reference to any of those things. Am I really that all-knowing and all-wise that I can self-determine the meaning of my life? Really? That's what the world is telling us. 
Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. Where there is not a word from the Lord, people go crazy. Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you read the book of Judges, it was chaos. It was helter-skelter. It was ups and downs, the rise and fall of culture because everybody was simply doing what was right in their own eyes. And then Amos 7, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people. I love that text. That God is saying to Amos, you know what? I'm hanging a plumb line. Those of you who have worked in construction know that a plumb line never lies. So we got all this modern stuff, transits and laser levels and all that kind of stuff. But you're out in the back bush. You got no electricity. You don't have all that fancy stuff. Get a rock, tie it to a string and hang it up and it never lies. Totally plumb, totally straight every single time. And the Lord says, I am putting my word in my people. It is a plumb line. You can base your life on this. And Jesus in this context is looking at his brothers making decisions based on watching the world around them. And he's looking at his religious leaders making decisions based on their traditions. And Jesus confronts both of them with the very same challenge that if you have no objective standard of truth by which you can judge your daily life and decisions, you actually have no foundation for knowing the truth at all. Do you want to know the will of God? Then you've got to make a decision about the will of God before you know the will of God. Verse 17. You've got to be willing to say, Lord, I am willing to obey your will, so show me what your will is. And he will. And it begs the question, what posture am I bringing to God's revelation? I need a source of truth outside myself. And am I willing to obey whatever the Lord reveals to me? And, and actually, those two questions are enough for us to chew on this week. Do I, do we, do you believe, first of all, do we believe that we need a source of authority above and beyond ourselves? If not, if you say no, then it begs the question, well, upon what are you going to base your decisions then? And you need to go down that rabbit trail. You need to go deep down that hole because there's got to be an answer there. Upon what are you going to base your decisions? And if the answer is yes, it is still the question, then what standard are you going to use to determine your judgments? And if Jesus is clearly making a statement to ultimate truth, which he is, that there is only one standard of truth, the question is, will we believe him? Now, just let me remind you, we've put it up almost every week, the reason this book is written. At the end of the book, John says this, this book is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name, that you will believe his claims. And so as I close, I'll ask you just two things. Have you acknowledged your need for a source of truth higher than yourself? Simple question. Do I need truth higher than me? Do I need an outside source? And then secondly, are you willing to surrender your will to the will of God as it is revealed? Both questions are incredibly relevant. And so I'll ask you, like I've asked you many, many times in this series, what say ye? What are you going to do with the claims of Jesus? When the world clashes with Jesus, when religion clashes with Jesus, we've got a decision to make. Whose judgment are we going to trust? Why don't you stand together with me? We'll pray. The music teams are going to come and lead us. Father, what a relevant text in the day and age that we live in. It's a challenging text. 
Because that idea of judgment is not something that our culture likes. And yet you said when you are judging, because we make decisions every day, make sure you're judging by a right standard. And so, Lord God, you hold out to us the words of truth, the words of life, the words of light and hope. And I pray for every man and woman who's listening to this message that they would anchor themselves solidly in the truth of who you are, who you claim to be. And even when there are questions that we make that faith statement at the beginning, I am willing to do the will of God, so Father, show me what is the will of God. That we would come with this humble posture that said, I certainly do not have the answers within me to all of life's questions. And then, Lord, give us grace as we live this out in the day and age that we live in, in this moment of time in Western civilization here in BC, here in Canada, the times and places, the people that we live with. Give us great wisdom, we ask, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.